Well, the drama that is the relationship between Jacob and Esau has been playing out for us over the last about two months in our sermon series in Genesis. And that scene finds its resolution, at least to some degree, in our text for today. Remember when these twins were born, Esau was delivered first with Jacob grasping his heel on the way out, and that has been the relationship ever since. Competition, deception, anger, rivalry, even fear. We saw this so clearly in Jacob's prayer to the Lord in chapter 32, verse 11. Jacob is praying and he says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. This is a relatable scene for some of us. We might tend to think of sibling rivalries as something confined to childhood or adolescence, but many of you could tell stories about how these dysfunctional, damaged, toxic relationships have resurfaced at a time when everyone should have been mature enough to prevent it. And so while you may never have feared an armed confrontation with a sibling followed by an army of 400 men, some of you have certainly lived through decades-long tension, animosity, even hostility. But we know this isn't just a sibling thing, right? This is a human thing. Interpersonal struggle is a tale as old as time. It's central to human interaction because we are naturally curved inward. We are natural self-worshippers. And so anything that threatens our own sense of control and divinity, it becomes our enemy. And so today we're going to see the conclusion of this brotherly drama. And we'll learn a couple of things about God and about ourselves in the process. From Genesis chapter 33, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel. And they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, Jacob said. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. 
But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard, just one day all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's pray. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We confess and believe that it is true and good, and we submit ourselves to your word today. And we ask for you to accomplish all that you desire in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we consider this story of Jacob and Esau sort of coming to a conclusion, allow me to share two things that God teaches us in this passage. The first is this, that God has the power to change hearts and fix relationships. Most of us would agree that what takes place in our passage for today shows us that there was some measure of change in the heart of Esau. Everything that we've learned about Esau so far in Genesis hasn't reflected particularly kindly upon him. And if we're honest, most of us would be pretty angry if we were in Esau's place. And so Jacob, fresh off of his hip injury from his wrestling match with Jesus, continues toward the promised land to which God was calling him to return home. We've already established that Jacob was dreading this inevitable meeting with Esau. And so what actually takes place is nothing short of mind-blowing for Jacob. He bows down to the ground seven times as he approaches his brother, and what happens next is fascinating. Esau shows him grace. He gives him mercy, forgiveness. And he appears, at least, to want nothing other than what is best for his brother. Now, we know the full picture. We know the significance of Jacob and his lineage. And so I think it's safe to say that God had changed Esau's heart. God gave him a heart of forgiveness and grace in order to protect that family line through which God had predetermined to send the Savior of the world. God has the power to change hearts, to fix relationships. If he can do it for Esau, he can and does do it for us as well. This is a, a powerful scene that's packed full of importance for us. It's an example of forgiveness and reconciliation and a message of hope for those who need to hear it today. Some of you might be familiar with the work of Paul Tripp. He says that the work of reconciliation like we see in our text for today, is actually one of the chief purposes of the church. He says this, quote, The church is not a theological classroom. 
It's a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center. Where flawed people find their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. In other words, we aren't just here to be educated. Church isn't one of those hundred-level college lectures where you sit and listen, but you know in the back of your mind that you're never going to use any of this ever again. This is intended to be a place where you and I encounter the Savior. Or as I shared last week, this is a place where Jesus initiates a wrestling match with us. A while back, someone in our church family made an astute observation. This person noticed that I spend a lot more time addressing the sins in here than I do the far more numerous and presumably worse sins out there. And while there may have at least been a little bit of an accusatory tone in the conversation, I was glad that somebody noticed. And in the ensuing discussion, I was able to explain that there are a few reasons why I approach things that way. First and foremost, that's my approach because that's what Jesus did. If you pay attention to Jesus' teaching, he spent very little time bemoaning the disaster that the world was, the evils of the Roman Empire, whatever it might be. He spent a lot of time speaking to the sin and the unbelief of those who were around him, those who were in his presence. There are other reasons as well. In many ways, the hot social arguments or fights of the day are sort of the low-hanging fruit for preachers. If the goal is to get likes or shares on social media and be part of the sort of infotainment rage culture that we live in, then that's what you decide to talk about, right? People will be passionate about it. People will praise the preacher for taking a stand for the Lord. But the reality is what we want to hear and what we need to hear are two very different things. We want to hear things that will make us feel better and better than. What do I mean? We want a preacher who will make us feel better about the sins that we cling to and better than those who cling to sins that we don't. We all want to hear things that make us feel better and better than. But what we need is something different. What we need is as simple as what the Reformers referred to as law and gospel. We need God's law to accomplish all that it is designed to do to us and in us. We need the good news of what Christ has done for us to remind us of who we really are. What we need is a place where the Holy Spirit brings us every week to repentance and faith, where we're free to confess our sins, to be honest about our failings and our flaws, because we know that the gospel always gets the last word. And so this is a place where we say the hard things about ourselves first. How often do I use that imagery? You're probably sick of hearing the imagery of looking into God's word as a mirror. Why do I repeat that? Because it's when we're in God's word, when we're staring into God's word, that we see the sin that still remains in us because it reminds us of who we were and who we are when we see the wretched reality of our sinful nature, then how beautiful is the gospel, the promise that Jesus has given to us. 
here's why this is important. When God's law does its work in your life, when you've looked into that mirror and seen what's true about you and me as sinners, and then when into that moment, into that reality, God speaks his good news that Christ died for that. Christ died for what you see in the mirror. We walk out of here, when we hear that message, we walk out of here unable to hold on to resentment. Unable to cling to the greed, the jealousy, the competition, the hostility. Because we know what's true about us. And we see the beauty of what Christ has done for us. When we believe the gospel, our response is to live as Paul described in Romans 12, 18, when he says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. That's what the gospel produces. That's the fruit of the gospel in our lives. People who are quick to forgive, people who refuse to let dissension or division or hostility linger. Or we can think of it this way. If we are allowing those things to linger in our hearts, it probably means that on some level, we aren't believing the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the role that, for example, trauma can play in forgiveness, resentment. I understand that there is scar tissue that lingers. I'm not saying that believing the gospel just fixes all the damage that's been caused. The reconciliation that we see in our text for today doesn't mean that Jacob and Esau are suddenly best friends from here on out and fully trust one another? Not at all. Believing the gospel means that I give up my right to be resentful, to be angry, to be jealous, to be hostile toward another sinner. It means not having the right, not needing reparations, not demanding a pound of flesh. And that's the work that happens here in this room, in this place surrounded by these people confessing our own sin, abandoning our own need for retribution and allowing God to give us the freedom to love our neighbor and even our enemy, even those who have angered us and hurt us. God has the power to change hearts. Second thing that we learn in our text today is this. Jacob shows us that we are simultaneously justified and sinner. This phrase uh, is probably one that you've heard before. I've shared it from the pulpit before. It's one that comes out of the Reformation to describe our current condition as Christians, as believers. Martin Luther expressed it with the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. I don't expect you to know Latin today. It just means at the very same time, justified and sinner. How does Jacob show this to us? Think back to our text from last Sunday. Jacob has this encounter, this wrestling match with God himself. He's, he sees the face of God and he lives to tell about it. And if you remember, God gave him a new name. He said, you'll no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. God gives him this name, Israel. He, he was no longer the deceiver, the supplanter. He was now Israel. But here's the interesting thing. If we think back to earlier in Genesis, when God changes Abraham's name, 
Essentially, every time from then on in the scriptures, Abraham is referred to as Abraham, not Abram. But that's not true with Jacob. Jacob, or Israel, in the rest of Genesis, will go on to be referred to as Jacob about twice as many times as he will be referred to as Israel. Jacob's life was a walking contradiction. He wants to be Israel. He wants to be the child of the promise, the next step in the lineage of the seed that God had promised would crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3. He wants to be that guy, but he also still wants to be Jacob, the deceiver. Look at verse 12 of our text. Esau said, let us be on our way. I will accompany you. So Esau, who just showed Jacob incredible grace, invites him and his family to come live with him. But, but Jacob doesn't want to. And so rather than just be honest about it, rather than just tell Esau, no, I don't think that's a good idea, Jacob says this. He says, everybody's tired. The animals will die if we keep pressing on any harder. You just go ahead and I'll come after you. So Esau and his men leave with the understanding that Jacob would be following them. But then in verse 17, Jacob goes a different direction. He goes to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself. He set up his new life. He made shelters, built corrals. Remember, Jacob is coming from the north. He was in what is modern-day Syria and maybe even as far north as Turkey. He's heading south, back toward the promised land. And Esau invites him to Seir, which is in the south, farther to the south. But instead, Jacob, as soon as Esau is over the hill, Jacob turns and he leads everybody northwest, the other direction. Now, this might not seem like a problem on the surface. In fact, it's probably a good thing that Jacob didn't follow Esau and, and live with him. There's every indication that setting up a life among Esau's people would have been problematic for the Israelites. But this new location that Jacob picks isn't any better. And we'll see that next week. If you read ahead into chapter 34, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture, you'll find out just how bad of a decision this was for Jacob and his family. And you might be reminded to pray for the preacher who has to preach on that text next week. The problem is that it seems as if God is calling Jacob to go not to Sukkoth or Shechem, and not to Seir, but to Bethel. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 31, while Jacob is still in the north, in Haran, God appears to Jacob and God calls him to leave, and as he's doing so, he refers to himself as the God of Bethel. Not only that, but in Genesis 28, Jacob had indicated when he was at Bethel, he built this pillar and this altar, and he indicated that if God was with him, if God successfully carried him through on this journey, that Jacob would come back here and make his offerings to the Lord. That it would be at this place that Jacob would worship the Lord. For whatever reason, Jacob heads in the other direction. Jacob both lies to and deceives his brother Esau. Immediately after receiving mercy. And then he heads in the opposite direction. He was both Jacob and Esau at the very same time. 
Both the new person that God had declared him to be and yet still the same old Jacob. Deceiving, conniving, going his own way, all to his own detriment. But this is our story, right? As Christians, God has declared us justified, forgiven, a new creation, born again. By faith, we are a child of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's special possession. Scripture even uses words like holy and righteous and blameless to describe, even the word saint, to describe all those who have faith in Christ. We are justified. We are made right with God by God's grace alone. And yet, at the very same time, my sin nature is right there with me. Many of us have been walking with Jesus for decades, and yet we find that we remain weak in the same areas that we've always struggled with. That we're quick to run back to that sin that was a problem 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. We have the same doubts, the same triggers, the same fears, the same temptations. We're simultaneously justified and sinner. In and of ourselves, when our lives are held up against God's word in in comparison to what God has commanded for us, we are sinners. And we can't stop sinning. But thankfully, in, in the courtroom of heaven, where it really matters, from the perspective of the one and only true judge, we have already been declared forgiven by faith. Christ's righteousness has been given, applied, imputed, credited, just as if we had always obeyed. That's Jacob, isn't it? Chosen one, Israel, and yet the same old Jacob. Christian life is lived in this tension, in this paradox of sorts. If I had to stand before God one day, based upon my own obedience, my own goodness, my own righteousness, I would be damned. And so would you. But I don't. Christ suffered and died for my sin, that I might be washed clean and declared righteous, that I might be justified, made right with God. I am at the same time justified and sinner. And there's so much hope and so much freedom in understanding this. In this picture of Jacob, who is so much like you and me, being both Israel and the same old Jacob, you are not justified by what you do, but by what Christ has done. God has the power to change hearts, to fix relationships. Jacob shows us that we are simultaneously justified and sinner. And as we close today, I want to draw one more connection for you that you may or may not have noticed in the text. And that's the connection between verse 4 and a story that Jesus tells. Verse 4 says this, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him, and they wept. Does that remind you of anything? 
Listen to the words of Luke chapter 15. These are Jesus' words. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You think Jesus pulled those words out of thin air? No, he spoke them in Genesis. It's the parable of the prodigal son, right? The son who wished his father dead, who took his share of the inheritance, who fled to a far-off land, squandering his money. He comes back home with his tail between his legs, prepared for his speech, begging for forgiveness. Both of these encounters tell the story of the prodigal returning, and both tell of the gracious reception that was given. Undeserved, unexpected, inexplicable, prodigal, wasteful. But that's the grace of God to sinners like us. It should be a familiar story. Not only because it's the story of Jacob and Esau and the story of the prodigal son, because it's my story and it's, and it's your story. I was dead in my sin, nothing to offer, no excuse for who I am and what I have done, and God came running to me and embraced me and threw his arms around me. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we have. We try to put our best foot forward, don't we? We try to come up with a way to to make up for what we've done, hoping that God is somehow pleased with us. We send our proverbial gifts ahead of time, hoping to appease God and, and God like Esau says, what's the meaning of all this stuff? And we, like Jacob in verse 8, says, I was just trying to find favor in your eyes. God replies, I have plenty. I need your gifts. Just like Esau, just like the father in the story, what I want is you. God uses Esau, that fiery, impulsive, violent, short-sighted, unbelieving older brother to show us the love of God, to speak gospel words to us. You don't need to impress God today. Jesus Christ died for your sin. He made peace between you and God. Believe the good news. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, I am amazed each week as we work our way through Genesis just how much I learn about myself, how I can see myself and my sinful nature in nearly every person that we encounter. But God, I'm grateful that Genesis doesn't only reveal that which is true about us, it doesn't only teach us about the history of our faith, it doesn't only show us our sin and our tendency toward unbelief, but that in Genesis we actually encounter Jesus, the answer for our sin. Lord, I pray for uh, all who are here today, for all who are experiencing a, a Jacob and Esau relationship that is in need of reconciliation. I pray that you will change hearts, starting with ours. We thank you for the the hope that comes from knowing that we are at the very same time sinner and justified. It's not 
one or the other. It's not one day I'm justified, but then I sin and lose it. Thank you that because of Christ, all who have faith are justified in your eyes. We're so grateful that our salvation, that our eternal hope doesn't depend on what we do or how saved we feel. It depends wholly and completely on what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. Give us hearts to believe that good news today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.